Uh, we're so glad you're here um, with us. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you'll grant me just a little bit of a long introduction. I want to talk a bit about preaching, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll start actually into the sermon. One thing that is a challenge for me preaching across a crowd like this is that we, we kind of got three different generations all represented here. And we got the young folk, and then we got the people in the middle that kind of blend between those. And then we got, you know, our senior saints on the other end of that. Here's what I mean by that. There's, there's, a, there's a group of people in here in the middle, like myself. I remember the first time I filled out my information on the internet. I went from having grown up, whoa, uh, grown up, uh, filling things out by hand. I knew how to do this ancient practice called handwriting. Like, I know cursive. It's crazy. All right? And I learned to fill things out. But at some point in my life, I began to fill things out on the internet. Old people that are in here, you just kind of said, I'm never putting my information into a computer. So you got that group. And then we got a young group that doesn't know handwriting. They've only figured it out on the computer, right? And so when it comes to preaching, you're always addressing these three different crowds. Do you remember, for some of us that can, uh, the first time that you had to go to a website and put in your address and you're like, I wonder what they're going to do with this, right? You were getting spammed from 10 years ago for filling out that coupon, right? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had to, maybe for like your taxes or some other thing, you ever had to put your social security number in a website? Is there a more, more fearful moment than typing that in, right? Why? We are afraid, as the famous theologian Dwight Schrute said, identity theft is not a joke, you know? We're afraid that somebody is going to take our information, hijack it, and then pose as though they are us. That they're going to get our address, or our phone number, or our mother's maiden name. And then all of a sudden, we are no longer in control of our own identity or saying who we are. And I think this is really key for us as we come to sermons. And the reason why is we put the preaching of the word as central in this church. As beautiful as communion and baptism is, they're not the center. The preaching of the word is. Because without the preaching of the word, we don't know rightly what these things have to do with Jesus. Without the preaching of the word, do you know that the Bible is a Jesus book? It's all about him. Preaching gives laser-focused clarity about the person and work of Jesus. So here's the thing. When people come and say, I don't need theology, all, it's really all we need to do is love God and love people. My next statement is going to be, okay, which God? Which people? And the moment you begin to answer that question, you're now doing theology. Understand? The Word has got to inform 
our faith and our obedience. And so for us in this church, one of the things that we want to do is, is just not be vague about Jesus. We want to be crystal clear. We want to get his identity absolutely and fully correct. And so we come to scripture week after week and we get together and we do not discuss what CNN or Fox is discussing. We need news from a different network. Now it applies to what, whatever they're arguing about on those, those teams. But at the basis of it is, we need to get from heaven the good news. And so we come here and we preach so that people might hear the voice of God through the word of God to the glory of God. We, church, are called to be mouthpieces, not editors. Mouthpieces, not editors. And, and we, we didn't just think that this is a good church strategy. We didn't read a, a book other than the Bible about it. The Bible is incredibly serious about the Bible. And, and that's going to play into the sermon today. But note here how even the scriptures give the word primacy in the early church. The word is equated to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The word extends his sovereignty through it. Have you thought about that? Whenever Christians went places in the books of Acts, they didn't carry strategies, they carried the word. Acts 8.4 says they took it everywhere. The 18 months in Corinth, Paul was gripped by the word in Acts 18. The same in Ephesus. During the, the two uh, explosions of missions out of that church, all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. When Luke wanted to indicate success in a mission trip, he says the word of the Lord grew and prevailed. Is that your metric for success in missions? It impacted Theophilus, Luke 1, the centurion Cornelius in Acts 10.44, the proconsul Cyprus in Acts 13.7, the citizens of Antioch in Acts 13.44. For it was no wonder that the disciples put it up front as the power in their ministry. Even nameless amateur missionaries in Acts 8.4 took that the word of God that the apostles carried was like a weapon. It's like a weapon. Does a person in here believe the word of God? Does even one? The word in Acts 4.4 is said to be what brought you to faith. Have you read Romans 10? How can they hear without somebody going to them? How, how can someone go unless they're sent? How beautiful is the feet of those who preach the word. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Does a person receive the spirit in here? Is there a Christian that has received the spirit of God? Acts 10.44 says you got the spirit of God through the word of God. So as beautiful as so many other things we have in the church is, community and communion and weddings and, and communion, I, I mean, it's just awesome how many beautiful 
treasures God has given the church, the Word of God has a primary role in the church. And I can tell you from our elders' perspective, we put the Word in agreement forward and in the center place of this church. So, I say all of that to say, if you are a true Christian, it happened through the Word. If you are a counterfeit Christian, it is because you have no part in the Word. Acts 8.21 It is no exaggeration to say that the Word of God is the primary vehicle for the Spirit of God to do the mission of God for the glory of God. So, here's the thing. We're just, not, we're just not engaged with small business here today. We're engaged with the Word of God. Heavy, big, eternal, vast, infallible. And so let's pray and ask God to do what He has done in the past with His Word once again amongst us. Dear Heavenly Fa- Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and do it through your word. As you have told us you would do, as you promised you would do, as you described and showed us in the book of Acts that you have done before, come, O Lord, and do it again. Do it in my heart. Do it in my brothers' and sisters' hearts. Do it in the hearts of any friends here that have gathered and don't know you, don't know your spirit, God, come and educate us in the deepest spiritual sense. Disciple us. Turn us from sin and turn us to thyself. King Jesus, this is your church. It's your people. Come and be the pastor, be the shepherd, be the teacher. Help us to um, zoom in on Jesus, know exactly who he is. God, to rightly see our own sin and exactly who we are. And God, just help us to crash into each other. Father, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. Without it, we're lost. And so, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd have this space and do whatever you want to do. I pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. If you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 12, uh, 35 through 37. We've got a lot of work to do today. You're like, it's two verses. It's like, you don't know me. You don't know me. All right, so... Uh, let's jog just a little bit. We've been in the triumphal entry for, I don't know, a few months, all right? And, hey, it ain't my fault. Jesus just took his time, all right? They rolled out the red carpet for Jesus, and he's just lollygagging in Jerusalem, and we're going to pay attention to every detail. Because as we've been there for the last few months, we've noticed that every single movement that Jesus has done in chapter 11 and chapter 12 has been in fulfillment to Scripture. And so we've, we've went from palm branches and dying fig trees to Jesus playing linebacker in the court of the Gentiles in the temple um, to him playing now Jeopardy with different groups coming in and posing questions to him. That led us uh, last time into um, him addressing the Sadducees. And we've kind of talked about these three types of groups. There was the Pharisees who were the conservatives of their day who thought that the Bible didn't go far enough so they had to add additional rules and laws in addition to Scripture, and then you've got the Herodians who played with Bible only in order to get political power, and then you've got the Sadducees who were the theological progressive or liberals 
who stopped short of Scripture. So they cut out the parts they didn't want. The resurrection, angels and demons, and the spirituality. Each of these groups have come to Jesus asking questions in chapter 12, not looking for answers we've discussed, but looking for ammo. And so we've talked about, as a church, we've got to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. When some people come to us with questions, they genuinely don't want answers. They're just looking for a fight. Amen? And we got to be discipled by how Jesus handled them and to imitate his good form. Amen? So Jesus comes and he has this debate with the Sadducees. He dismantles their whole Bible-denying, no-resurrection theology with a present, active, indicative word. Singular. I am. They didn't believe in any resurrection. He says, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am their God. Now, present tense, here and now, just wrecks their whole theological system. And he does it from the books of the Bible they supposedly say that they believe in. This is the brilliance of our Master and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said this, it bled into the story about he had groups coming to him and now he's got a singular scribe last week. We get a solo guy that comes and we said this, he listened to the debate with the Sadducees and was won over. Oftentimes, when we have theological debates or discussion or disputes like the Lord Jesus, we're not changing the minds of those that we're disputing with. We're changing the hearts and minds of the people that are eavesdropping on those conversations. He was one amongst the crowd who saw Jesus deal brilliantly with the Sadducees, and he was compelled to go further with Jesus. There are some people that you are not paying attention to that are listening to the arguments you're making for Christ They're listening to your preaching to others. They're watching your example and lifestyle to others. And they are being drawn in. Even if you're not paying attention. Or even if you think they're not the focus of what God is is doing with you in a particular relationship. So the scribe comes and open in ways that they're just not open. And we said this. He is an individual that is less biased. The well is less poisoned for Jesus. He comes from a hostile group. But he himself is open. And we said this. We just got to be honest that at times we can see people that are different from us politically or pagans or different from us spiritually as enemies and say all of these people, they're not going to believe. Or I got family and my family's not going to believe. Or I've got some group that I've convinced myself they're hostile as a group as though God is not able to save out of them scribes like this or the Apostle Paul. And so we've got to go back to our Bible and let our Bible open our hearts to the idea that there are individual scribes from hostile groups that God's going to save. Come on now. You know he can save people in Durango, right? And like four Californians. God can save individuals out of a hostile group. And that's what we learn. So Jesus begins to answer him. He answers him from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, what's called the Hebrew Shema, which is pivotal kind of catechism for the Jewish faith. And they would recite it in the morning and evening. And he, he kind of does a paraphrase of it. And, and says, love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. The scribe hears it, 
and says, right on. That's it. He loves Jesus' answers. Doesn't that feel so different from where Jesus has been from answering these other cats? Like he got a dude coming in and saying, yeah. And, and then he turns and says, like, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor, self, it's better than all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices. This dude answers Jesus back, quoting six or seven different passages from five different books in the Old Testament. Here's what he does. He goes full theology nerd, kind of geeks out. Jesus is sharing Bible. He gets stoked. He catch with him, throw some Bible back at Jesus. Jesus sees what his response is and says, to the, says of the scribe that he answered wisely. Could you, do you know what he just got to do? He got in Bible study with Jesus. And they're just chopping it up. They're just, they both love the word and they're going there. I love this. And the answer of Jesus, and this is where we ended, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Y'all remember that? We discussed this not far. Now for me, that's weird. We were going to say, yo man, he had a good answer. Jesus, get that dude in the kingdom. And we said, you're knowing the law and you're keeping the law, even having right Sunday school answers about the law, which is love God and love others, does not get anyone into the kingdom. Because by the law, no man is justified. What the law does is it brings you to the doorstep. And at that doorstep, grace opens the door and faith enters through it. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But here's what the law does. It shows my need for Jesus to open a door that I can't open myself. So he's not far. He's at the doorstep. But he's not in until he understands his need for God's love, his grace, and his mercy. And so, you know, not far. It only works with like horseshoes and hand grenades. And so, not the kingdom. So that kind of gets us now to verse 35. Now check this out because we're going to be talking about scribes last week, this week, and next week. And it's, it's interesting kind of where Jesus shifts gears on these scribes. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple. Pause. So now he's on the offense. And by the way, most of us, if we understand that people don't like us at a certain place, we stop going there. Right? Like, Jesus clears the temple. He's got nothing but conflict that happens at this place. He's showing up on time. Right? He's dug in like a tick, as we'd say in the South. And he said, how can the, what's your Bible say? Scribes. We were just dealing with one scribe. Now he's like, oh, yeah, speaking of scribes, let's talk about what the scribes say. How can the scribes, how is a question word, say that the Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, is the son of David? How could they, how could they say this? So let's make a couple observations to kind of set the tone for what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has been, tell me if I'm wrong, in this chapter bombarded with questions right parents have you ever had your your kids ask you 14 million questions in a row and your patience wears thin you just want to like i'm not say kick them in the chest i mean just say could you ask your mom right right 
That's right. So you get the sense of like you could be wearing a little thin. Notice here, Jesus is not being asked a question. Jesus is asking the question. He looks him in the eyes and says, I'm the captain now. Right? He's going to shift it. He went from playing defense to offense. He went from playing defense to offense. So, like, one thing we've got to say here, like, Jesus, disciple us. Here's one thing that we have to know. You can't, as important as apologetics is, you cannot always be playing defense. Church, it is our imperative that we attack erroneous, commonly held beliefs in our culture in order to supplement them with the truth. Amen or oh me? We have to attack them. Defense clears the ground. If I had to go out to Ronnie's land and I wanted to plant a vineyard, right? I'd have to clear it of rocks. I'd have to prepare the soil. That's what defense is. We pull weeds, answer questions. We help people by clearing the ground of things that are already occupying the soil of their heart and mind. We love apologetics and defense, but we just don't clear the ground for some other weed or rock to find its way there. We clear the ground that we might plant seeds of truth that will bear fruit in their life. That's offense. We get the ground clear so we can plant something in that space better. And so, we want to supplant it with the truth. Notice here as well, this question about the son of David is not a question they were asking. I love that. Because, have you ever prayed before? And you were praying about something you thought was like the most important thing in the universe? And you knew in your, mo- in your heart of hearts, the Holy Spirit turned you and said, focus on this. Yeah, but I ain't praying about that. Right? You ever been there in prayer where God, you're like, God, I have to have an answer about this like right now. And God's like, I want to talk to you about this over here. Like, like Jesus is yanking the steering wheel of the conversation. He's asking a question that they, they're, they're not even in the realm of. So that's curious to me. He's like driving them here's what I'd argue, to what they should be asking. It's like, get in, losers. We're going to go to Bible study, all right? And he's going to take them there. Let me put it to you another way. He's going to create theological problems that they didn't even know they had. He is going to create theological problems that they did not even know that they had. Matter of fact, he's going to create theological problems Here's how I'm going to answer this, that actually only he can answer. That he alone, in the fully God, fully man, can be the answer to. And I think that's brilliant. As a pastor, let me say this, I have lots of people that, throughout the journey of their faith, suffering or the sovereignty of God or their prayer life or something that happens in their faith, and they just get a grain of sand, kind of like, again, or like a sticker or a thorn faith and they just feel like they have some question that they can't move on from and it is something that i observed over and over again that when people get to these hard places in their faith how often they run to the world first they'll go to somebody's opinion they'll go to philosophy they'll go to therapy they'll go to so many other places 
And my counsel for people is always, first and foremost, go back to Jesus. Begin with Jesus, end with Jesus. Because here's the thing. Jesus is ultimately the point of the whole book. He's the point of your life. Starting in their place is starting off on the wrong foot, down a wrong path. Go back to Jesus. And so Jesus is going to actually create theological problems in people in order to deepen them in knowing him. Do you see the theological problems that you may have in your faith as a gift from God for God trying to deepen you? Jesus is not afraid of posing them questions that they themselves can't answer. In order to bring them to a place where they have to acknowledge that he alone is the answer. Do you know him? It's all about him. So Jesus is going to use these brilliant questions to reclaim the center of the faith that is rightly about him. These questions are powerful. They're poignant. They're probing. And the question for Jesus centers on David. David, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, was the, like the prime example of what a king, the greatest king in the history of the Old Testament. He expanded the kingdom during its glory years. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a brilliant tactician on the battlefield. He was a prophet. He, he was just kind of like the dude. And so out of this um, developed God prophesying that through David would come a king that would be an eternal king. That he would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. That he'd be of the physical descent of David, right? That he would be a king on David's throne. That the idea that David's throne is being kept warm, the whole idea of the kingship in the Old Testament was something God used to anticipate the eternal king, the Messiah, to come. It became such that the title, Son of David, equals Messiah. It's interchangeable. It's synonymous. It became exactly the same thing. This happens in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is teaching and doing miracles, people ask the question, could this be the Son of David? Now, that's not accidental. They're saying, is this not the king to come? Is there someone that could ever be greater than him? Or even, we've talked about this in uh, Mark chapter 10 with Bartimaeus, which Jacob preached. Bartimaeus, when he hears Jesus is going by, cries, Son of David, have mercy on me. Y'all remember that? That's a confession of faith. Right? Or Mark chapter 11, when Jesus comes into and began this triumphal entry some years ago that we started it, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's what they cried when Jesus walked in the city. These are theologically, confessionally loaded statements that are confessing what? The connection to him. It has its roots in the Old Testament. I don't have time to explore all of these. But Psalm 89, Micah 5.2, Amos 9.11, Ezekiel chapter 27. And I could go on and on and on. There were prophecies about one who would come through David, enter into human history, and be the eternal king. So Jesus took something that is a commonly 
held belief about the Messiah, and he's going to, he, he wants to talk about it. Everybody listening to him, nearly everybody, would have understood that when the Messiah came, he would be a son of David. Now note here, push pause. We know those two parts of Matthew and Luke that you never read are the genealogies. I get it, all right? And we've talked about this before. One is the genealogy of Joseph, who will be the legal adoptive father of Jesus, and the other one is of Mary. He is connected to Judah and to David on both sides. Those genealogies, I just found this really helpful, and the genealogies up until the time of Jesus were kept by the scribes. If Jesus was not physically descended from David, they had records of that. They kept hobbit-like records. Where's Matt Leah? Is he even here? It's my Lord of the Rings reference for the week. Um, they had references to these genealogies. All they would have to do is go into their records and pull out a record saying, see, Jesus isn't descended from David. Do you notice nowhere in the Bible do they attack the physical descent of Jesus through the Davidic line? That's just for fun, all right? But the problem is that their understanding was that the Messiah would only be a son of David. See, they're, they're right in that he's a son of David. They're just half right. They're half right. They knew in the Bible he had to be a son of David. But see, what Jesus is going to bring out is the real problem is that the son of David is more than the son of David. It's not that he's not the son of David. That's absolutely theologically correct. Their common belief that the Messiah would be the son, that's, that's right. But it's only half right because the Messiah is going to prove to be more. Look at the next verse. David himself. So by the way, not quoting anybody else. We're going to the source here, talking to Dave himself, all right? In the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to give me just a moment to take a, a hardcore pastor rabbit trail, okay? Look at what your Bible just said. David himself is the author of the psalm that's about to be quoted, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's what's going to be quoted, Psalm 110. And it says that that was written in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, or this is where, as Christians, we did not invent the biblical doctrine of inspiration. That the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We didn't just cook that up. We went to the Bible and find in the mouth of Jesus that he held that it was the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of Scripture. Do you hear me? That's right there. This word inspire can up though, right? Because Mozart's inspired, Michelangelo's inspired, Chris Paul is inspiring, right? Because you're 50 years old and still playing basketball against 20-year-olds. But this is not what the Bible means by the word inspired. It comes more from the Latin root inspiro, which is that the Spirit is in this thing. And that's what we use from the Latin to try to describe what is happening here when it says that while David was writing, it was the Holy Spirit declaring things. 
that the Word of God is ultimately authored by God. You can't know my mind until I begin to open my mouth and communicate. The Bible is the communication of the heart of God to humanity. You hear me? Let me make this really simple to you. I have, uh, um, for some of our people that are married in here, there's been times where I've been sitting there, and I mean just having an awesome day. Just awesome. And my wife come up to me because my face looks like this. And say, are you mad at me? It's like, what in the world gave you that impression? It's like your face. It's like, I just, just, this is one I got, all right? So I don't know what to tell you, right? Until I begin to open my mouth, I now have to convince her what my heart is, right? Does that make sense? God has opened his mouth so that we don't have to guess about what his heart and mind is. God has given us an inspired and infallible word. He speaks so that we might know. So here's what I want to land at. Jesus unashamedly affirms the divine authorship of Scripture and we'll see the Trinity. And so should we. I'm going to encourage you. If you're a Christian, be like Jesus. Affirm the authority and inspiration of Scripture and affirm the Trinity. Be like Him. But you're like, wait a minute. What if man corrupted the Bible? I'm sure you heard this. Like, what if man got in here and corrupted? I think you have a decision to make. A, do you believe in the all-powerful, sovereign power of sinful man to corrupt the Bible? Or do you believe in the all-powerful, sinless sovereignty of God to write the Scripture? At some point, you're going to have to make a decision whether you believe more in the sinfulness of man or more in the sovereignty of God. But you can't have it both ways. Either you've got a God who is sovereign over all humanity such that he is able to bring about in his word what he wanted communicated, or you have the sinfulness of man able to thwart the sovereignty of God and insert things that God never intended to be inserted or delete things that were, that were supposed to be there that were deleted. It really comes back to Who's your God? Where does your faith lie? And I'm going to tell you, as a church, we're going to ride with Jesus. Not the internet atheist or your crazy uncle. When it comes to the Bible, we believe what Jesus said about the Bible. I know that's really surprising for you. But that it is what it is. All right. Second note is he quotes Psalm 110. Jesus is going to do an expository sermon. One of the reasons why I land on expository preaching verse by verse through the Bible is because I see my Lord and Master Jesus go to the Old Testament and break down a passage exegetically. He's going to get it in its context, its meaning, and its history. He's going to connect it in ways that ask the right questions and lead people to a Christocentric ending. So Jesus was an expository preacher and he's going to handle this text. This text... Ironically, I studied this and I thought it was baffling. No passage is quoted more by New Testament authors from the Old Testament than Psalm 110. And I know Lee and some of them are going through the book of Hebrews. The whole passage about Melchizedek is also in this passage. This passage is quoted some 33 times. And if you're the New Testament authors and you step back and look at them, 
the New Testament author said this was critical for people truly understanding who the Messiah is. He's, and so it's not surprising then that the Messiah himself is going to drive humanity to look long and hard at this passage. Now, let's get into what the passage says. The Lord, now in Greek, this is both, both the Lord said to my Lord. These are both kurios in Greek, the Lord, Lord. But in Hebrew, the first is going to be the tetragrammaton or Yahweh, Vavhe, Yahweh. And the second one is going to be the title Adonai, Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Which if you've got kids who have ever tried to step on other kids, you understand this is a high level of disrespect, right? Jesus is like, I'm about to disrespect every enemy of the cross that there is. About to put all sin and evil and wickedness under the nasty feet. Okay, the Lord said to my Lord, when the Jews would read this, they would use Adonai in both places because they wouldn't say the unpronounceable name of God of Yahweh. What's curious, and here's the conundrum. David, one, is talking about the Messiah. Everybody would understood that, that is going to come through his line. He's prophesying here. But David's calling him Lord. That's one problem. We'll get to that in a second. The main problem here is that God's calling somebody else Lord. And we learn throughout the Psalms, God alone is called Lord. Nobody else gets this title the way God gets it. Much less is God calling somebody Lord. Do you see the conundrum? Jesus is their son of David idea. But he's going to get into this place of like, he's more than that. And you can tell that because David himself is going to have God telling God something. Now, if you don't have a Trinitarian understanding of the Holy Spirit here inspiring this, the Father speak, this is, a, this is the Trinity talking to himself. And for some of you, that makes a lot of sense because all you ever do is talk to yourself. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing. And Jesus is like, that ain't there by accident. That's not a mess up. Dive into that. He's like, follow me down this path for a minute. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand is an equivalent, is is a Hebrew way of saying equivalent in power and glory. Somebody here is equivalent to God in power and authority and glory. God is saying something to God. And here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. David, pay attention. He's nudging Dave. Dave, eavesdrop on this. Listen to what God is saying. He's inviting Dave to ear hustle. Dave, write this down, right? Here's what Jesus is affirming. Not only is he the son of David, Jesus is proving that the Messiah would be the son of God. That he'd be the son of God. Now, this is pretty critical for us. Because I think that a lot of people that we would share the gospel with in, uh, in our workplaces, in Bayfield, in Ignacio, in Durango, um, they, like if we start to share Jesus, they're like, oh, I, yeah, Jesus is good, man. 
we need more teachers like Jesus and Buddha and, you know, Jordan Peterson or whoever. Like, they just kind of equate him with some sort of teacher. But once we start going into the realm of, no, 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 he is the Lord God whom you owe all of your worship and allegiance and obedience to. Now we got a problem, am I right? Right? Because now he's not giving suggestions, he's giving commands. And we trip on that. And let's just say we're not alone. Like, the Jews might affirm that he's a physical descendant of David, but they're not worshiping him as God. Um, Muslims, other people that we would get engaged with. Um, I talked a story about a couple of Muslims. One Muslim had a um, gospel encounter with last week. And there was another one that I had in the same week. A guy named Muhammad. Um, we got in a discussion. And I really felt like he was a person of peace. Like, he was very open to what we had to say. And so we started asking who he is and where he's from. And, you know, what does he believe? And, of course, with a name like Muhammad, we could guess. Um, and so we started to ask, like, who, does he know who Jesus is? And he says, oh, yeah, Jesus is a prophet. Half understanding. And I said, well, the Bible teaches that he is God who has come to redeem humanity that has fallen. He says, well, we as Muslims, I've been taught that he is not God. That that's not, he, he, he said this, Jesus never said about himself or even taught people that he was God. You know the same exact thing that we just ran into in this text? Half understanding, incomplete, and here's what I'm going to argue with our Mormon friends as well, insufficient to save. Insufficient. And so I said, well, you've heard that before. Have you ever read the Injil? It's Arabic for like the Gospels. I said, No. So I said, so you're just basing this off of what somebody else told you. I said, and my thing was, is like, I want to encourage you to read the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to tell you right now, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, as me and my church are currently doing, you're going to see Jesus over and again. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created Sabbath. Sabbath is all about me. Ain't nobody talk like that. He claims the divine name of the I Am. Right? He claims the Daniel 9, Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. And here he's going to claim, I'm the Lord that the Lord was talking to. Are you tracking? See, it's not that they're wrong about him being the son of man. It's that it's half right. Part of our jobs as Christians is showing Jesus. The other part is showing who he's not. Do not, church, let anyone steal his identity, vandalize it, and make him out to be less than your Savior. Half biblical, unbiblical, Mormon, Jewish, Muslim, or pagans hijackings of Jesus saves nobody. And so here what we see in Jesus is, Jesus refuses to let them settle for a limited or distorted Christology or understanding of who he is. So he's going to come to the temple where he's not wanted and he's going to teach. Their reaction, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Here's the second problem with the conundrum that Jesus 
just laid out. The first one being, I looked up to see if that's my kid. Um, Whitney's still on mission trip, so Dave, if my kids act up, you get them. Um, the first conundrum has to do with this Lord speaking to Lord thing, which we just addressed. The second conundrum that Jesus just raised up is like, if David himself calls him Lord, how is he his son? Right? Now, you may not get this because you're a modern American, and for the most part, I think the die is out. We're kind of getting terrible at parenting. All right? Uh, when we, we served in Mexico and built an orphan, a drug compound that was changed into an orphanage down in Mexico, and it was just a lot of work, a lot of manual work, had college students down there, physical stuff, and they fed us food during the day. And when we came in um, to work, mainly the men that came in, they served the men first. Anybody's family do this? Nobody. <laughs> they served the men first. The working men got served first. Then the women who made the meal, who do you think that they served last? Kids. We have house church. Who do you think we serve first? <laughs> Just stuff food in them. Go somewhere else, right? There's a shift. Now, for modern families in America, we don't get this. But even I'd argue in your family 50 or 100 years ago, a lot of times you served people that were working first. It was an honor. It was a respect. It was a thing culturally. Now we serve kids first. Here's what's interesting. We have made our homes child-centric, spoiled them, made the whole thing about them, and then when they grow into adults and act like baby Hitlers, we're like surprised. Right? It's like we're arguing to a 30-year-old, the world's not about you. I know we made it about you for 30 years and you've known no different. But now it's not about you. Right? I, I say that to say, think in their conservative traditional family, how many great-grandfathers we're looking at great-grandkids and calling them Lord. I can give you a good, solid, round number. Zero. Right? Like, in my household, I don't even let the kids sit in my chair at the table. I will daddy tax everything on your plate. Right? Like, in my house, and we're, we're not near to where that is. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not calling any of my kids Lord. Anybody else want to say Amen. Like, I'm out. So this might be hard for us as Americans who have made our kids into idols and made our point of our families into the kids. This might be tough for us. But biblically speaking, the problem that Jesus is raising to them is David ain't calling, especially David, especially the king, the prophet, the warrior, the shepherd. He ain't calling none of his kids. Have you read about some of David's kids? He ain't calling none of his kids Lord. Unless that kid is their Lord, is his Lord, because of something else. Because God calls him God. The Lord calls him Lord. So David rightly is going to call him Lord. Not because he's the son of David, but because he's the son of God. Do you see it in the text? Jesus 
is going to riddle, riddle me this, Batman. Jesus is going to raise questions that are going to lead to the answer that he is fully man, son of David, and fully God, the Lord, equal with the, the Father in power and glory. Ty, can you bring up that passage about Philippians? That is what the right hand means. He's putting all sin, evil, and the wicked under his feet as a sign of disrespect to injustice. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, I know you can't read that, it's too far away. Being found in human form, son of David, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for sins like yours. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is, what does it say, church? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Go to the Romans 10.9. We use this as a Roman road, don't we, Melissa? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, what does it say, church? Lord, not prophet, not just son of David, that he's your Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pivotal, critical, central. Jesus grabs the steering wheel. He drives them straight into the heart of the Old Testament that teaches about His Lordship. Let's talk about missions. Let's talk about the Great Commission. Go to the next one. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Before we ever go and make disciples of all nations, we have to know the true statement Jesus just said, and that is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. If you don't believe that, you won't make disciples. But if you believe that He is Lord, and all authority is His, there's no sin He can't conquer. There's no nation the gospel can't penetrate. There's no mission he can't do. See, you've got to get his lordship right, right here. He's got not some authority, not just future authority. This is present tense. It's been given to me. It's on Jesus right now. Now go make disciples of all nations. Confess him, as Philippians said, as the one who in human form is the Lord of all. Confessing the way that Romans invites us to believe that through the resurrection He's conquered death and He is Lord. Let me pray for you. If you are here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ 
Trust His work on the cross for your sins. Trusted His resurrection, His ability to bring life out of your death. If you've never confessed Him as Lord, if you've never sworn your allegiance to Him as King, why not today? Why not today? I'm going to pray for you. And if there's something that you need to do, deal with between you and God, listen, I love you. Deal with it. Go there. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to repent of something, to make amends in a relationship, to trust Him with something that you are clearly not trusting Him with, I want to invite you to follow wherever the Holy Spirit is leading you. Let's start with Jesus as Lord and end with Jesus as Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you are the Lord of all. At your name, knees bow and tongues confess. At your name, darkness is dispelled and light breaks forth. God, you are the king that has conquered sin on the cross and is conquering evil in our world. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends in here that they would know Jesus as Lord. That they would worship Jesus as Lord. That they would confess Jesus as Lord. That they would treasure Jesus as Lord. And that their life would be about knowing and making known Jesus as Lord. Father, if there's sin in this house that needs repented of, Holy Spirit, bother Convict, draw, do your work. Let them not rest until they turn into your grace. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, that you might win a bunch of scoundrels like us. It's for that reason, King, that we pray and we come to you and we worship. It's in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said... Amen. Would you stand and respond in worship with us?